0: Recently, it seems that our Western culture is grappling like never before with how to deal with issues of otherness, what does it mean to be diverse from one another, what does it mean to celebrate difference and what does it mean to find pathways back towards one another through reconciliation instead of heading in our opposite directions because of our differences. The key to making all of that happen is having your eyes opened to who you are and who others are and leaning in with compassion to hear the stories of those who are other from us. Today's guest has done precisely that and is doing precisely that as he explores and begins to identify in new ways with what it means to be Cuban-American. Welcome to this episode of The Transformationist. Are you thirsty for inspiration and curious about the life-changing process of transformation? Welcome to The Transformationist. Whether you already know the transformation you're looking for, or you're looking for guidance on the way there, these stories of hope will give you practical tips, plenty of encouragement and an invitation into real life-giving transformation, whether you're transforming culture or becoming more yourself. Your story is welcome here. On today's episode of The Transformationist, a delight to sit down with a good friend of mine, uh, Joel Diaz, um, from the Atlanta area in Georgia. Keeping it 100, that's been what I've learned in my little sojourn here in Atlanta. I'm still not sure if I'm saying it exactly right, but there you go. Uh, Anyway, uh, welcoming Joel onto the podcast today to talk about something that is uh, fascinating to me as somebody who spends a lot of time travelling in and out of other cultures, uh, talking primarily about what does it mean to discover your ethnic heritage, your uh, racial blueprint, if it were, and then figure out how to navigate around that in the world you live in, no matter where that may be. So um, a delight to have you joining us on the show, Joel. Thanks for coming along.
1: Super excited.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) tell us a little bit about your background and where you come from, because sort of the starting point of this conversation is that you are the son of immigrants to the United States. Yeah. Yeah. So where did they come from? Tell us a bit about your your parents and your family.
1: So, uh, both of my parents, uh, came to the United States from Cuba. So 90 miles South of Key West, uh, Mm -hmm. in Florida. Um, they came as teenagers, uh, eventually re-meeting, uh, reconnecting here in Atlanta at a youth event at a local church, uh, fell in love with each other and eventually got married, um. And then that's how I showed up on the scene here in Atlanta.
0: (laughs) So why did your parents leave Cuba? Uh,
1: Because of the revolution. I mean, there was a lot of uh, pressure there. Things became very uncomfortable. Um, And so my dad was able to leave with his parents Mm -hmm. on uh, what's called the freedom flights, uh, which occurred uh, during uh, the late 60s, um, early 70s. And then um, my mom left with her parents and they actually first went to Spain oh, and okay. then eventually uh ended up here in the Atlanta area long story there but um my grandfather was very valuable to the government mm. being in the medical field uh mm-hmm. he basically was kind of like the CDC for the island so if something broke out some type of illness something was going on in a city my my uh grandfather with a team of doctors and lab technicians would go there, try to isolate whatever was the problem, and then uh, put you know make sure that they eradicated it, and then treated the people, and that was you know that was it. So uh, it was very difficult. And his circumstances of getting out was uh, pretty much you know I know not everybody believes in miracles, but it was an incredible set of circumstances that occurred where the government let my grandfather not only leave with my grandmother, but also my mom to give them all three permission to leave, knowing. We give this guy permission to leave with his entire family. He's not coming back, mm. um, and that's how they they were able to get out.
0: Okay. So growing up, what kind of uh, I mean, what did it what did it look like? What did it feel like to be Cuban for you growing up in in the United States?
1: Um, it was it was all I knew until I entered the school system at five years old. So everything at home was in Spanish. Uh, super tight knit family. My grandparents were around when I was little. When I was a newborn. And my brother was a newborn. Uh, we did our uh, obligatory stint as good Cubans in Miami for one year of my childhood because <laughs> of my dad's work. Right. Um, but uh, church was in Spanish. I mean, just everything for the majority early on in life, everything uh, that I can remember was Spanish. So I, you know, technically English is my second language.
0: Right. Yeah. And so you started to learn English when you went to school.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'd start, you know, in the playground, my mom tells us, uh, told me a story. Uh, at this point in my life, we lived in Omaha, Nebraska for one year um, because of my dad's work.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, she's told me stories of my kind of eavesdropping in on my brother and I with our neighborhood friends in our uh, Omaha neighborhood where we're speaking to our friends in Spanish and they're replying in English.
2: Mm.
1: And somehow we learned to communicate right. that way and so our little friends were learning Spanish words and we were learning English words and that's where that uh that's where that started and then uh I went into uh started to go into into school there uh, at that point we were at an english-speaking church because we had left the Atlanta area uh, and gone to you know the Midwest so everything was kind of in English and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of where the transition for our family as far well my dad he was in the business world so he had to learn English. Uh, my mom, even up at that point, uh, was not comfortable in a full-on English conversation, even though she graduated from an American high school right. in Atlanta. So that's really where I remember that transition starting to learn English and English becoming more um, heard within. You know, you could you could hear it in our house every once in a while.
0: Okay. Uh, when How long did that transition? I mean, when you get together with your family now, do you speak primarily in Spanish or is, is English the language of the day?
1: Depends on the person. Oh, right? really? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> uh, because my dad's been in the business world and I actually spent uh, early on in my adulthood years working with my dad in mm-hmm. the business world, uh, it was weird because we would have, com- anything that was business related is English. Yes. And then when we talk about family stuff, it'll be Spanish. Uh, with my mom, typically uh, it's in Spanish. Phone conversations, in Spanish. Um, if we have an English speaker around and we're at the house, obviously English, you know, to be polite.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, grandparents, always Spanish.
2: Right. Uh,
1: aunts, uncles, everything's in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on the family member. And, and if you track it back, the longer that I've known them, The more likely it is that I speak Spanish with them,
2: uh, right? Versus
1: New York family members, we automatically just speak in English.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So, what is it? What's the role that language plays then? So, in the culture I come from, language has been a really important part, almost the most critical part of keeping uh, what we call um, Te ao Māori or Te reo Māori. Um, So, the the Māori worldview and then the language of of Māori. Uh, alive and and in, and in the present day w- what is the role of language because i mean spanish is the language of cuba but it's not necessarily the in- i mean spanish is a language that belongs to lots of parts of the world right so what's the relationship between the speaking the language and then owning and embracing Cuban culture at home. Did you keep hold of Cuban culture as you were growing up or did your family sort of s- slowly start to migrate more fully into a traditional American existence?
1: Ooh. Um, I think it's both like uh, American traditions set in, mm-hmm. but they were, Oh, what's a good one. They were enhanced. By Cuban culture, in my opinion, <laughs> right? I
2: Everything. love American
1: culture. I'm not trying to knock it, but you know, there's like, and basically, when I say enhancements, it's more uh, food. All right? right, so you know me, big okay. into. I love food. I love mm-hmm. exploring uh, different cultures and what they eat and flavors. But there was there just there'd be a mix. Like if you came to uh, a Thanksgiving dinner when I was a kid, like there would be a turkey. But more than likely, there's going to be black beans and white rice and some fried plantains
2: mm-hmm. along the
1: way. Like, yeah, um, and we'd be speaking Spanish mm. at the table. Like, all our family would come together. Everything would be in Spanish. The desserts, you might have a pumpkin pie and a pecan pie. Being down here in the South, but there's probably going to be tres leches and dulce de naranja. You know, it's just like <laughs> there's gonna it's going to be like this mashup. And so, um, there were things like that, but then there were. There are things, that, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain because it's so natural to me
2: mm-hmm, that mm-hmm.
1: it's almost like trying to, it's, it's hard to find that division point between what is the American influence and what's the Cuban influence because they've kind of just melded together mm-hmm. so beautifully um, in my family. And so um, we still did like traditional, the big, big Cuban feast nights, those still happen. Uh, within my family. We still we, st- we still try to do that. And when I was growing up, they definitely mm-hmm. happened. And that was kind of the big night where we got to share Cuban culture with f- American friends. Mm-hmm. So I remember sometimes our house just being packed full of people uh, for the, you know, Bernil, which is like the roasted Cuban style ham and the yuca and the plantains and the beans and the rice and all the desserts and everything that comes in Cuban cuisine was on the table. There was not there was no American food per se right. there and there's Cuban music playing and there's espresso. And, uh, at that point in my life, my parents were teetotalers, but now if you come, there's Cuban rum, there's Cuban cocktails that, you know, so it's just more of the Cuban culture. We play dominoes. I don't, it's a little too intense for me, <laughs> but my dad and my brother, they get into it. And if you've ever been around Cubans playing dominoes, you really can't hear anything else. It's like, one of the most intense table games i've ever witnessed and so um but that's all going on so that's that's always fun and we and then you know school friends would come over
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they would just soak it up and they think it was awesome you know all these new flavors and dominoes and the spanish and uh in fact we had one friend in high school who just fell in love with the spanish language and decided to spend even though he lived here in atlanta he lived with us for a summer uh, just to immerse himself and the, the deal was when we were at home, all we did was speak Spanish around our friend Gabe. Mm-hmm. And even to this day, <laughs> he's completely conversational Spanish. He's got complete control of it.
0: Which uh, is remarkable. Yeah. I mean, because Spanish is like, is it's the second largest or it's actually the the most commonly um, spoken language. I think it's spoken language. in the most
1: countries. I think just by pure population, there are more Chinese speakers. Mm-hmm. or Chinese language mm-hmm. speakers. Then. But
0: even here in the U.S. Oh, isn't in the it? U.S.,
1: yeah. I it's, mean, it's, you, it's, everywhere you go. Yeah, which yeah.
0: is amazing. I mean, where I spend most of my time in California, the, I, I, I'm i kind of wondering, wishing that I had learned Spanish. Oh, yeah. You know, as opposed to <laughs> German, which has been really helpful to me. Yeah. I mean, there's
1: there's pockets here in Atlanta where if you go, you better, it'd be really good to know some Spanish. <laughs> Just so you know, you can read the signs, right? you know, and mm-hmm. know what you're looking at, but...
0: So um, how much time have you spent going back to Cuba?
1: So that's been recent. Right. Um, I'm 44 now. My first trip was when I was 43. So just a little bit over a year and a half ago. Oh, wow. Um, I'm about to go back uh,
0: mm-hmm. at
1: the end of this week and I'll be there for two weeks. And it's a big trip uh, because my wife and kids are coming with me on this one. But uh, yeah, it was... Uh, just about two two years ago. Now and, we're and why up so long?
0: I mean, is it obviously the the Cuban US relationship is something of a little bit of kind of common mythology yes. in the world that I come from. Like you know, we understand some of the socio political right. impacts of of what happened with the revolution and and the change of power there, mm-hmm. and then the various trade embargoes that make that a really interesting political relationship with a country that, as you say, is just ninety miles south of right. Florida. It's kind of ludicrous. Um, but what are the things that kept you, um, what are the things that kept you from from going to Cuba or going home to Cuba and experiencing that culture?
1: Um, I mean, there was definitely, uh, when you're part of a Cuban family, uh, and especially one that suffered firsthand mm. during the revolution, I mean, mm-hmm. what happened was real uh, mm-hmm. within my family. Uh, and, and so that,
0: close in terms yeah. of generations, right?
1: Right, exactly. I mean, we're talking about my mom. Yeah, you know, so uh, one of the things of the of the of the revolution, good or bad, was uh, that there was religious persecution, Mm. Um, and so that's where uh, my mom's side of the family suffered. My my grandfather, even though being a medical doctor, was very involved in his uh, Christian community. There uh, was a leader, Um, and while uh, being a, a doctor full time. For the government was also involved in ministry almost full time, and so uh, when the revolution occurred, you know they kind of started putting putting their thumbprints on different things and mm. uh, limiting things and uh, eliminating things, and so uh, there's that and and having family members that were in Cuba that were arrested mm. uh, and spent time in prison. Uh, some of them were tortured. Mm. Or and then having friends of the family that were tortured, mm. so there's a lot of you grow up hearing all of that. Plus the political tensions between the U.S. and Cuba, which you've already alluded to, but it kind of uh, you know being where I'm at now, um, it it became something of a whipping post
2: mm-hmm. Cuba did
1: for the U.S. Right, whereas like this is our common enemy, mm-hmm. um, and. Cubans that were coming into South Florida in droves, they were uh, they were also battered people,
2: mm-hmm. tortured
1: people, uh, families split uh, because of the revolution. I mean, a lot of division. And mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, if you could go back in time and in American history and look at the Civil War and seeing families that had to pick sides, I think that's what's happened here
2: mm-hmm.
1: is... Uh, the revolution came in and, pe- and families picked sides. And um, even within my family, I have an uncle who recently passed away here in the States, but for years he was, uh, he aligned himself with the the communist government in Cuba um, and with the revolution and was all for it. Um, it wasn't until decades later, uh, we were able to finally meet my uncle in Spain
2: mm-hmm. and meet
1: in Madrid. And then that started the process and uh, they were lucky enough to win one of the very few lottery, uh, U.S. immigration lottery uh, drawings, wow. which allowed them to come to the U.S. fully legal. Um, and they lived with my parents for a while, and we were able to establish their lives here and made a great run of it uh, mm-hmm. until he passed away. Um, my aunt still living, but e- even that, I mean, that took some time because I grew up as a kid hearing about this uncle who was a communist, right? Right, mm-hmm. um, and so. That's the tension that that's the reality in Cuban families and people my age in their forties that are first generation American uh, is you live in the midst of that, that tension between uh, uh, the revolution, which is still fresh on the minds of your parents and your grandparents. And then you're this American kid who I see that, but I also see hope for the future
0: mm.
1: and trying to bring those two worlds together.
0: Right. So when your family came, I mean, obviously your parents were, were, were teenagers, but did they experience, um, did they experience kind of backlash or racism or, I mean, what was their, what, what kind of experience did you have as a family unit, I guess, as that family was forming of, of being immigrants into the U S?
1: You know, in thinking about, uh, recording this podcast, I was, my parents never really talked about that, but I know it existed. Mm-hmm. Um and I know it existed because I witnessed it in grade school, middle school, high school years.
0: Uh what was that even, experience even like?
1: Um so my mom my parents still have an accent. <clears throat> um I remember one time in church uh another church member basically telling my mom that she needed to learn how to speak English better. <laughs> um there was always comments like that. I remember one time a lady uh my mom we got stuck in the snow. We lived in Utah for a little while because of my dad's work. And so (laughs) um, we got stuck in the snow in her car and the car wouldn't go. And my mom was trying to go and it just wouldn't go. And this lady came up and like banged on my mom's window that was behind us. And she was frustrated because she was stuck behind my mom and said something to her. My mom tried to apologize. And when she heard my mom's accent, like just got nasty right with my mom and I'm you know sitting there witnessing that mm-hmm. you know that that sticks out in my mind a lot cuz my grandparents I was sitting between them in the back seat and uh i just got so angry that you know as a kid you don't know what you're saying but i was like if she comes back i'm going to kill her mm. like i said that <laughs> and my grandmother you know my grandparents who were missionaries like freaked out like well, I don't know why do why did you say that you know
2: yeah
1: uh but i just remember how angry i was at witnessing witnessing that uh, behavior, I know, and my dad's had people say stuff to him about, you know, his accent
2: mm-hmm. or
1: his lack of command of the English language. Um, and so, but I've never heard stories of them in high school. I think, I'm not sure on my mom's side, I'm sure she's probably got some stories. My dad was uh, just super athletic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so- uh,
0: The privilege of sports.
1: The the privilege of sports got him into the, the cool kids club. Mm-hmm. Um, and- uh, yeah. And so if anybody is listening, yes, uh typical Cuban, uh, he was an amazing baseball player, <laughs> uh, started on the varsity team all four years of high school as the catcher. Uh, the, he did not know how to play football at all. Never seen really a football, mm-hmm. but he could run really fast. They taught him how to catch it. And then uh, during high school, he played both offense and defense. Like here's what we want you to do. we want you to run really fast. We want you to catch this ball And then when you play defense, we want you to hit people. And my dad was like, right on, I got this. So uh, I think my dad's high school experience was probably very different than my mom's. Plus my mom finished up high school here. She started off high school in Spain. Right. So, um, and she still has friends there. Mm-hmm. That her are her age, that were school age, the same age, and all of that. So, so
0: she's had multiple cultural experiences, right? In her yeah, life, you know, mm-hmm. where where language might be a common thread, but actually the cultural experience is really different, right? Um, so, what made you decide when you were when you were uh, forty three? Mm-hmm. Um, what made you decide that it was finally time to go to Cuba?
1: Well, I mean, th- there's always the fear because it was illegal. Mm-hmm. for Americans to go. Now, there was easy ways to do it. You fly to Mexico, you go to the Bahamas and then you go from there without a passport and mm-hmm. put yourself at risk. Um, and my dad, you know, I think, I think it's okay to say my dad had done that a couple of times to help out our family with mm. needs in Cuba, um, which was even riskier for him because he has originally a Cuban passport and so the government still sees him as a Cuban citizen. Mm. And so that's a, a little hairy. I was born here, so... I'm a U.S. citizen, uh, but with the Obama administration backing off on the travel restrictions and um, a little bit of a thaw on U.S. Cuban relations during uh, President Obama's administration, you know, the opportunity came up through an organization I work at a church, uh, and at the time was still working with with students, an organization that I had gone traveled with to Haiti, and
2: mm-hmm. the
1: doors had opened. They said, "Hey, we're putting trips together for Cuba," and I was like, "Let's do it." Um, and so that was pretty much the, the reasoning behind it. I was like, now there's no excuse for me not to go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like it's, it's, it's time for me to go. And uh, how awesome would it be to take students um, and some families that traveled with us to go experience this and, and see that not only that, but it was obviously there's a connection there in the community of faith mm-hmm. for us in our context. So um, that's how that decision was made. I wish I could tell you that it was like this big, long, drawn-out decision. But you've come to know me. <laughs> like, you, it, did op- you say adventure? Let's go.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so obviously, I mean, there's. I can't imagine, but I'm going to ask you what what sorts of things went through your mind as you were preparing to go because. So much of this, so much of the stories that are told about Cuba, there are these individual minute single kind of facets of a story. So um, as you kind of mentioned, you, your, your father was, you know, going back every so often, there's this familial connection Mm -hmm. and wanting to help your, your family members who are still, um, you know, suffering if that's the best word yeah. but suffering under uh under a regime that that creates some poverty mm-hmm. and some need uh, then there's the there's the romanticized travel Story yeah. right of of a Cuba that is somewhat lost in time mm-hmm. uh, due to the due to various trade embargoes where you know every car is is held together with pieces of duct tape and and, and wire right uh, and then there's the the story of rum and the story of cigar rolling and and yeah. these idea the idea of these commodities that are somewhat precious and unique to this microcosm um, and then there's the the political scenario so what's going through your mind as you prepare
1: to go to Cuba, oh wow! Um, honestly, the first thing was uh, I was there was fear. Mm-hmm. I was super nervous uh, because of the stories. Um, even though I knew some of those people put themselves in that situation for lying or being dishonest in their in their travel to Cuba, which is what got them in trouble with the government in the mm-hmm. first place uh, on the and Cuban you mean side. The Cuban government, yeah, yeah, yeah. like at least in the american government i know i'm going to have representation i'm going to have some rights <laughs> you know yeah um traveling to 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 cuba and at that point the us embassy was open now so i mean like things had really thought out so i i i wasn't uh i wasn't like thought i was going to get arrested at the airport but there was some like just the unknown mm-hmm. right it's i'd never been to a communist country before like that's a new one mm-hmm. um and so there were there were those things and then there was just the like what's it going to be like to finally see this place that in my mind is this uh i don't know this place uh, i don't even know the right word you it's you hear about this place your entire life
2: mm-hmm.
1: right uh it's it's like uh reading uh um um let's see like a a, a cs lewis children's story or some this wonderful land that you've heard about i mean it's got its negatives obviously but you've heard about all the beauty of cuba and the cars and you know the architecture obviously the culture um and then you have throw family into that that you've never seen face to face never been able to touch or hug or um all those things so um and you've never even really seen the island um i think before the first time I traveled to Cuba, we were on a flight that flew over Cuba and that's the only time I've ever seen it. And it just looked like a big green island, right? You mm-hmm. just fly over and you continue on over the Caribbean. So um, there was just all of this emotion uh, stirring that really didn't uh, didn't bubble up and I didn't really even begin to start processing or deal with it until the day I traveled to Cuba, like the, <laughs> right there. Okay. Yeah.
0: And so what, what happens on that day?
1: Oh, uh, so we we fly down and we make our connection down in Fort Lauderdale and then we take off. And as soon as we take off, it's like 90 miles, right, from Key West. So I mean, you
0: basically take off, go up. Go up
1: and tr- come yeah, down. Exactly. That, I mean, that's the flight. <laughs> so um, I remember taking off and I just got super excited. And then we flew off of the edge of florida you know i'm sitting at a window seat like watching the whole thing and as soon as we fly off the edge of florida wi-fi gets cut on the plane Mm -hmm. right because no longer over american airspace once you're out a certain Mm -hmm. number of miles so then i was like okay all right this is different and so we're flying in then the uh pilot comes on and says hey there's a massive storm over cuba so we're going to make a big looping circle and dive down through the clouds uh on a different approach just want to give it you know just basically the thing everybody knows like It's going to be kind of an aggressive turn. Don't freak out on us. And so we make, uh, we go in and then we're in the middle of a storm. Like you can't see anything but white out the windows. And at some points it's so dense. I'm sitting right on the wing. The wing disappears. Like that's how dense the clouds are, Uh, which was unnerving because you always want to see a wing on a plane. And so (laughs) (laughs) I just remember I'd never experienced that before. I've flown a lot. And uh, we dip down below the clouds and all of a sudden it's like the ground comes rushing up. At the plane
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and i just sat there just amazed just mouth agape like i was just uh and i remember one of my co-workers uh paul reached over and like grabbed my arm and he goes you okay and that was all it took and then it's like waterworks right like i'm <laughs> like like crying on the plane like i don't know what's going on um but it even then, like right there, I was like, "This place is uh, this is amazing." Like I did. That's when the emotions all hit. And then uh, the next thing I remember most is as soon as they open the door of the plane, uh, it's like almost immediately I could smell Cuba. It was the weirdest thing for me. I've mm-hmm. never experienced anything like. That. I've traveled a lot of places, but it just hit me so hard. And then walking. Outside into the sun, down the stairs, out of the plane, onto the tarmac. It was just like, wow, I'm here. Like, I
0: did it feel like a homecoming of sorts?
1: Absolutely. But in the weirdest way, because you're like, I've been here before, Mm. but you've never really been there before.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It was like, okay, what's going on? Because I know I haven't been here before, but this feels so right.
0: You know, I had the same experience. and we haven't, I don't know if we've talked about this, but um, the first time that I went to Scotland and oh. um, driving over, um, which is where both my mother and father have family roots mm-hmm. um, there. And we were actually driving intentionally to go visit this the small town that my mother's family had come from, which didn't happen to be too far from where my father's family came from. Um, anyway, that's another story. But <laughs> <laughs> the um, But driving over the hill, I was all of a sudden... Um, just hit with this wave of emotion Mm -hmm. and this absolute sense of, I had exactly what you're saying. I have been in this place before, even though I'd never been there before, but feeling absolutely at home and overwhelmed with the sense of, um, of, just so many emotions that it would be hard to, to pull them all out and identify each individual right. one. And there are tears rolling down my cheeks, and I come over that little bend. I'm looking at this landscape of hills and and, and pastures. I come over this little bend, and then we're right there in Dumbarton in mm. the in the little village. And I realized, oh, my goodness, like this feeling that I have is yeah. the sense of, of homecoming, yep. which I think made me more Scottish than I've ever been. Um, certainly since that experience I've felt more Scottish. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was always pretty Scottish before, but um but the um so so what what happened after that for you? I mean, did you uh did you feel more Cuban Yeah, absolutely.
1: Cuba? Yeah. Uh it was like uh, you know, we have this expression in the United States. I don't know if you use it in New Zealand, but it was like drinking from a fire hydrant so
0: yeah no but
1: go on so you know a fire hydrant you crack that thing open it's like high pressure high volume of water the firemen Mm -hmm. hook up their hoses to it to put out a house fire so it was like cutting that on and then putting your face in it and trying to like drink all the water coming out it was just overwhelming Mm -hmm. at every every point uh i remember so so that the people listening understand i was there on a on a church related trip so i have yet to contact make physical contact with my family. They know I'm coming. Mm-hmm. They're excited, but we hit the ground running with the group. Because uh, you're at
0: work. I'm I mean, at work, this is, right? So work we're, job. Yeah.
1: we're getting everybody through customs. We're getting loaded on the bus. Uh, and then we start rolling. And then the this is when the cool stuff starts happening. So we're on this bus and I notice that this bus, I, the name on the bus is from a church. And so I ask uh, our contact in Cuba, I go, is this bus really from this church, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, yeah, yeah. We're partners with them and whatever. Well, the church that the, but the church bus I'm on is the church that my mom and grandparents, her parents attended Mm. like, and this bus is old. Like I'm talking, this is a 1950s bus. More than likely my (laughs) mom has sat on this bus. Like it was mind blowing, right? Just right out of the gate. So Uh, We make our way to uh, a city called Matanzas, which is on the northern coast. Beautiful place. And uh, that's where we're going to be for the week. Uh, Halfway through the week, my grandmother's side of the family, on my mom's side, they drive three hours from further on the island to come and meet me. So that's the first time I meet family. That was uh, pretty emotional. Uh, Although, didn't know them that much, even through social media. So that was kind of a get-to-know-you kind of cool. But obviously, you have familial uh, ties. So automatically you're already clicking in, in conversation and relationship. And so that happens. The next really pivotal moment was when the Cubans there, it was like, okay, this guy is Cuban. Um, hmm. and one night we got into a conversation and they're like, can you stay and talk with us? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so I sent the rest of the group and all the adults back to, uh, their housing for the evening. And I stayed there for an additional two hours and that's when the conversation got real. Mm. Um, that's when they started sharing with me how much they're suffering and reality of life in Cuba and that they're kind of, they don't know who they can talk in front of and who they can't and mm. who's going to share what and who's not. And that's when I was like, whoa, like it was a, a wake up call. Like this has all been great, but there's, there's people suffering here. Mm. Like and we're talking about simple needs. We're talking about, Feminine hygiene products, vitamins. I mean- The basics. The basics. Things that we take for granted every day. I mean, for them, it's a luxury item. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that that was a pivotal moment on that first trip. And then meeting my family, my my grandfather, uh, his sister, my great aunt, for the mm. first time. She has seen me grow, grow up through pictures. And I remember um, she was able to get a phone call th- through- near my high school graduation in 1992, which was Mm -hmm. almost impossible uh, to communicate that directly. And I would had one phone conversation with her in my life. Uh, And that was the most emotional moment was going down into a neighborhood in Havana and seeing a group of people out on a balcony outside of their apartment, just waiting for the taxi to show up. And just the explosion of joy. On everybody's face to see me right um I was lucky enough to have a friend with me who's a photographer who took a, a portrait of of that of of those moments and of those some of my favorite pictures I'll probably have for the rest of my life
2: mm-hmm.
1: was uh seeing that and that's that's really and then then when I got back is when the processing really started
0: yeah so let's happening talk about hardcore <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about <clears throat> the change let's talk about what changes for you uh, I mean, you've always been Cuban. You're 100 percent right. Cuban. Right. But at age 43, you go to Cuba. Right. And then you come home, and now <clears throat> you, like, are you now you really Cuban? Because now, yeah. you, now you know what home looks like, and you know what's happening, and yeah. and the people are real. Tell tell me about the processing. What did you learn out of it?
1: Well, I think what happened is I started like realizing what it meant to be Cuban
0: Mm.
1: because now okay now I've been there like I've experienced it I've seen it I've smelled it I've tasted it like all of my senses have been engaged but what started I started to process back through my life here in the states right and so if you you obviously we're recording a podcast people can't see me but if you see me in person um you would not ever pick me out as being somebody that's Cuban like
0: well what, yeah, so, I think you
1: can vouch for this right so <laughs>
0: well let's talk about like what is the Cuban caricature
1: okay well the the, the Cuban caricature is uh and and not to uh I, I mean I almost I'm hesitant to say it because I don't want to degrade my Mexican brothers and sisters but in in the United States, if you speak Spanish, then you must somehow have a tie to Mexico. And right. if you speak Spanish, there's just a certain, like your skin should be brown. You should have dark hair. Uh, you should be shorter.
2: Mm-hmm. Like
1: there's all of these, it's the caricature
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, that you can see in American uh, cartoons and all, you know, from right. the 50s, 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. 80s, 90s. Well,
0: and there's, a, and there's probably an accent to it also. Yeah, there's an
1: accent. Right. Um, and so obviously I speak without an accent. uh. And English is my dominant language now um, as far as use. Um, but that's, that's just kind of the thing. So what happened is I started a process and I started to think about growing up. So yeah, my parents were Cuban, but then I, I don't know why this happened. I started to realize parts of my life or situations that I got stuck in in my life where I chose to be white American, right? So mm. so there's all these conversations, obviously, that have been going on for a long time. And I've always heard the term white privilege. And I've always like, you know, I've recognized that. But what I didn't realize until I came back from, or being in Cuba and then coming back is, because of my appearance, I'm able to pick what culture I'm a part of, mm. right? Because of appearance and language. So when I go to Cuba, they they still see like, because my parents are Cuban, I get a pass, Mm
2: -hmm. but
1: they'll, they'll be like, yeah, you, you speak Spanish with a slight English accent, which I don't take that as an offense at all. I mean, that's life, right? Uh, that's, that's been my life. I've been here in the States now my entire, you know, my entire life. So, um, there's, so there's, there's that, but I just started realizing when I got back of all of these times where, uh, how easy it is for me to flip culture. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And then just a further understanding of, of the value, not trying to put a positive spin on it, but a reality and the ease of white privilege
2: Mm.
1: where I can just flip between cultures. And it happens all the time. I was at lunch two weeks ago uh, with somebody here in our community and we met at um, one of my favorite restaurants uh, here close to us. And he is an American dude. So the server comes up, and she's you know broken English, trying to take his order. And she comes to me, and I flip to Spanish, and she like did a double take. She goes, "Oh, you speak Spanish?" I was like, "Yeah, my I'm you know I'm Cuban. My my parents are from Cuba." And they're like, "Oh, okay, yeah, you yeah you sound a little bit Cuban." Mm-hmm. So being able to flip that on in just even a slight situation like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or going into uh, a situation in public where it just everybody assumes you're just well, another white American dude.
0: Because you're tall, right? You've got dark hair, but you yeah. know, you're not overly like you don't have a super dark complexion. Right. Right? You don't look traditionally Latin. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have
1: that Latin look. Right. So what's
0: the um what's the are there examples where you're conscious now, historically or otherwise, where where you have chosen the path of that white privilege? Because I think what's interesting about that is the, I think the common conversation nowadays, and at least we're talking about white privilege, Mm -hmm. but we're also talking about it largely in the context of not being African American. Right. 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 (laughs) As opposed to actually there's a world of immigrants here in the United States, much as there are, much as there are back in New Zealand and in many other countries. But, but we've kind of got these very kind of categorized and almost hierarchical descending order of, you know, yeah w- of, of immigration, you yeah. know, the, the Mexican piece, the Cuban piece, the African American piece, you know, there's, yeah. there's a picking order of sorts, which sounds terrible to say.
1: No, it, it, absolutely. And I think you could put that next to a graph of pigment color
0: mm-hmm. and they would match. Probably.
1: Right. So, yeah. uh, I have a, a friend here who's uh, from Germany, has only been here a couple of years. Um, obviously speaks with a heavy German accent, but his appearance is, you know, Anglo.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So everybody's cool with that. And I've had him around people that if his skin was any other pigment than white, they would have an issue, mm. right? Or there are some things that they've said or posted <laughs> They'd be like, oh, I hope he hasn't seen my Facebook wall, you know? Right. Um and so that's that really is the the reality of it all. It really comes down to it's I hate to be simplistic, but it really is skin color
2: mm.
1: in America. And and that's been magnified even more after being in Cuba and coming back and starting to process how easy it was for me if if my skin, if I looked more like my family in Cuba, uh because my grandfather was super uh fair skinned you know, white and I got his complexion. Uh, My brother was lucky enough to like, look like a, like a Latin lover model type, you know? So he got all my dad's athletic ability. He's, you know, he got it all. So. uh,
0: Hey, you got the flavor palette, man.
1: Yeah, I do. I do have the flavor. Thank you so much. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the body to go with it. (laughs) But uh, I just started realizing like, All throughout my life, I went to a a private school in the south side of Atlanta for a while that was uh, predominantly African-American students, but predominantly white teachers. And looking back at that, I remember, like I can remember uh, certain situations, whether on the playground or on the sports field or wherever, where I had a slight advantage of how I was treated because um because of the color of my skin by the people that were there so and then I had a little buddy who was Cuban but he looked Latin he looked mm-hmm. like a Latino kid and he was treated differently than I was
2: mm-hmm.
1: looking back I never realized that I don't I don't know if I really consciously. I'm sure I noticed like people got it, but it never dawned on me that it was because of the color of my skin. Um, and so, and there, you know, there's plenty of situations where uh, I've been around people and then they find out, Oh, he's Cuban crap because of things they've said about me. Um, you know, they, they, they don't make that connection at all. And so unfortunately I've learned some things about people in my life that I wish I wouldn't have learned because I thought they were awesome people
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then they either make the disconnect on my last name or something happened that's even happened before where people that know that I'm Cuban say something ar- around me and they're like, you know I need to apologize right because they had a, they see me and they mm-hmm. forget this mm. guy this guy is Cuban
0: mm. So how has that changed or what what are you thinking about in terms of how it changes? the way you live or practice or go to work or raise your kids in terms of, uh, you know, do you find yourself in a place now of wanting to um, dismantle the white privilege or work around it? Or is it just something that, that you're aware of uh, and therefore trying to still navigate around?
1: So, well, yeah, now I'm like super aware of it. Like it's always there. Um as far as uh, dismantling it, I mean, I'd love to dismantle white privilege, right? It'd be well, great. would you?
0: Because life may not be so great, right? If you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, and that's that's the, the, the tension, yeah. right? No,
1: that is the tension. Um, and, you know, I'm involved in different organizations where that's a topic is like, how do we move past white privilege in our country? And it's, uh, some people say like, that's impossible to never happen. And you can take that route if you want. That's not the way that I'm wired. Mm-hmm. I'm always wired to, there can always be progression made. And what's my role going to be in that? Right. Um, And so that's where I do. And like my kids, uh, I love the fact that uh, they have a healthy appreciation of diversity. Mm. um. Both racially and and gender diversity, like they they want to see everyone represented at a table mm-hmm. uh, when they're involved in something, and when not everyone is represented, they have a hard time really fully engaging. And I love that about my kids. Yeah, like I I like that they've gotten to that point uh, in their lives, and they and they they're not afraid to like you know point out and go, Hey, Dad, did you notice like you know and they and they pointed out. So um, that's that's really great to see in your kids that, uh, you know, we talk about, we want our kids to be that way and to see your kids engaging other cultures and uh, people of other religions and but still being secure in who they are,
2: mm-hmm. right? There's
1: nothing wrong that they have pale skin, but they're also aware of the fact of the advantages that they have mm. because of that color of their skin. Right. Right. And Which so,
0: awareness, I guess, is it's the opposite of ignorance and right. it's the starting place of at least being able to be to be conscious and hopefully to be conscientious mm-hmm. in the way that you live in I mean that's something that in my life I because I'm the only the only real marker of my otherness when I'm in a culture like the United States right. is my accent I open <laughs> yeah. my mouth and then it becomes clear you know but
1: everybody wants to listen <laughs>
0: Well, some people. Some people. <laughs> <laughs> once they get past the cute accent and they realise the, the, the provocative things I'm trying to say, right. yeah. they tend to tune out. Um but uh but I I become conscious of wanting to wanting to at least live conscientiously within the privilege of having a skin colour that allows me to fit in more easily right. within social structures that I would really rather tear mm-hmm. down and rebuild and recreate. And what I'm trying to figure out is the right pace of change, you know, like how quickly can we tear something down, you know, whilst also trying to build something different. Exactly. And and I think that applies across the board for, um, whether it's racial privilege, whether it's um, gender diversity, uh, you know, all of that stuff, we've Mm -hmm. got to be conscious of, you know, we can't tear it all down without having a different structure or a different way of being in place. To step into, to actually right. live into that new way of being, um, because I'm, you know, become increasingly convinced that you can't just shoehorn the new into the old. Right. But what do you hope for? Um. So you mentioned that you're you're heading off to Cuba again, mm-hmm. um, in, in just a few days, and you're taking your wife and your kids with you. Yeah. What are your hopes for, for them?
1: Well, I mean, my uh, the cool thing about my wife Lisa is when we were dating and we we're high school sweethearts. And so when we were dating in young, she just found Cuban culture fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for anybody that's listening, that's Latino in any way, shape or form, (laughs) they know that uh, there is never going to be a woman good enough for any Latin mother's son, like ever. Uh, So Lisa was smart enough to like jump in the kitchen with her start learning Spanish.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, she learned how to cook the dishes my mom cooks. Um, and just sitting down and having conversations with my mom and my grandparents, big winner. And so she was quick. I mean, she quickly won them over.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the Diaz dating strategy. That's the
1: Diaz dating strategy. So <laughs> I have a 21 year old son. Uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, so it is kind of funny cause that's, That's the dating strategy in our family now. My wife's not even Cuban. Um, But for her to go and see where my family's from, Mm. I'm excited for her and for her to meet people there. And the fact that she can have a conversation with them. Like, Mm -hmm. how awesome is that? Uh, And then obviously for my kids, it's the same deal. Like, this is where your great-grandparents came from. This is where your grandparents came from. Like, this this is this side of your family. This is it. We're jumping into the deep end. Yeah. Right. On this trip, we like me for the first 42 and a half years of my life. We, you were swimming around in the shallow end,
2: Mm -hmm. you know,
1: playing around in Cuban culture. Now we're about to like dive in all the way down into the deep end uh, and really experience it. And so for them to see the reality of Cuba, but also the beauty of Cuba Mm -hmm. um, to hear uh, the stories straight from my family to see the places where, uh, their great grandfather, my grandfather, who just passed away this last September, uh, to see the places that that he worked and served in, in the neighborhoods he was in, and the church that he was at and all of those things, like just tapping into uh, the past, tapping into history and actually uh, stepping into it and mm. experiencing it in the way that I did.
0: Well, because it's a history that's still alive. It's, right. it's a history that's actually very much present day, yeah. which is amazing. Um, what was it like, do you think, for your parents to have you go to Cuba and kind of re-engage or reawaken this, this extra layer of Cubanness? No,
1: I think they're uh, ex- fine with it. Um, my mom is always hesitant. My grandmother has zero desire for uh, myself and Lisa and our kids to, to go back. She thinks we're crazy. Um, Because
0: of because of the just that long-standing tension,
1: yeah, yeah, Um, that's those wounds are it's it's like they haven't really ever completely healed, Mm. and I don't think it's I don't think I can hold like tell somebody like get over it. I didn't experience it.
2: Mm -hmm. I
1: heard how horrific horrific it was, Mm -hmm. so I get it, and that's trauma that might never heal. It's Mm -hmm. something you deal with. Um, but I also do see the the reality where we don't see eye to eye on certain things like the embargo. Like I get why the U S made a trade embargo, basically an embargo on everything Cuba related, like not offering Cuba any services and not accepting any in return um, in an attempt to uh, undermine the government and the revolution that had occurred under Castro. I get it. But um, in going back in walking all the streets of Matanzas and, and Havana I've realized, you know, okay, I understand we made that decision as a country and a political decision and the fear of communism that existed in the world at that point um, as it was advancing all over the world. Mm. Um That's a reality, but the reality also is that the Cuban people are suffering mm. um, because of they can't establish trade with anybody. And then you look up at tra- trade statistics and feed, you know, stats on, trade with Vietnam and trade with China and all of the same human rights violations are going on in those countries. Mm. Right. Uh, uh, again, in, in, in our family, it's, it's the, the faith community, Christianity is huge. Um, there were roundups of pastors in China just a few weeks ago. Right. We're upset about that, but you go down to your local store and 90% of the things you pick up are made in China. Mm. And we're supporting that government and we're supporting that economy and we don't have a problem with that as Cubans. But for some reason, we don't want to do that for our own people. Mm. And that's the tough part for me. That's where, I, that's where I really live in the tension. Yeah. Right, because everybody that's uh, from my parents' generation on back uh, that lived through the revolution, they're like, heck no, keep the embargo in place. And then you have first generation American Cubans like me uh, who are saying doesn't make sense anymore. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Like why, why should our families suffer in Cuba over politics? Like let's end the embargo and let's figure out another way to work with the Cuban government Mm -hmm. to make sure that the human rights violations are not taking place. Yeah. Right. So, and and then you can get like some people are going to hear this. I'm going to get in trouble, but, uh, let's not turn a blind eye and think that the U S is not involved in human rights violations.
2: Right. right. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Let's. Not, we're not going to go into the discussion on that. That's like <laughs> a whole nother episode. But that's just the reality. Like I started processing these things. I'm like, the the America that I grew up on
2: mm-hmm. is
1: not as clean cut as it you're taught in school. Right. And the history, like, there's a lot of history that I've learned uh, in as I've gone back to to grad school in in religion studies about Southern Christianity and its culture during the civil rights movement that is very unsettling Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: being in Atlanta and then learning about the history of what went on just around our city and in our state of Georgia, it's horrific.
2: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: So now to me, it's like, there's this double standard. Like why do we care so much about human rights violations in Cuba? And we're not dealing about anything about it here. Really? We've never been vocal. And then at the same time, we're fine to buy products from other countries that are communist, communists,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we know about the human rights violations over there too, right? So there's this whole balancing act, and so uh, that's that's created some interesting dialogue
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: between f- uh, some family members and myself. Yeah, you know,
0: which I think is the the challenge, probably the most, probably the most. Uh, simple but also true way of describing the challenge that we live in. And in today's context where knowledge is everywhere and it's not hard to learn more than you knew before about actually how the world works. uh, Is that question of now that we know what we know, how now shall we live? Right. Right. <laughs> not, not how should we live because we've got the blinders on and we're able to, you know, exist quite happily without being conscious of our white privilege, without having to deal with some of those tough questions. But actually now that we know what we know, how now do we live? Like yeah. how do we live in that tension? How do we figure out the things that we can do in our immediate environment? Um, how do we figure out the things that we take a stand on? Because mm-hmm. I think um, in in uh, an episode with uh, Richie Hardcore um, just last week, we had that conversation about, you know th- – navigating how to have conversations about these difficult things is almost as difficult and confronting as the knowledge itself when you first yep. wrestle with it. Because you can't have an experience like what you're talking about, um, going home to Cuba for the first time, you know, becoming even more Cuban by setting your feet on the soil and being embraced by family members you'd never got to see face mm-hmm. to face before. That cannot it can't not change you. Right, And so once it changes you at that, at that very deep heart, soul, spirit, mind level, right. it has to then work its way out somehow in your life.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's like that with anybody that you meet in life. Any group of people, uh, ethnic, uh, sexual orientation, uh, religious affiliation, when you see somebody that's not like you that makes you uncomfortable, um, it's easy to uh, kind of have this weird disconnect from them as a fellow human being. Mm.
2: Uh,
1: but then, once you come face to face with them, and you enter into a healthy dialogue and relationship, it changes you. And then you you it's like you said you have to do something has to be done. You you can't just pretend like that never. Happened because that would be easy. You know, I could come back here, completely ignore the Cubans that are reaching out to me on Facebook and text messages and WhatsApp or whatever, however they're trying to communicate with me. It's easy for me to shut that off, never go back to Cuba and never have to deal with it again. Mm-hmm. Right? That That's an easy one. And we can do that with people in our daily lives. Um, But it's that whole idea of, uh, when we have a mutual friend, uh, Andrew Marin, the whole idea of living in the tension. Mm-hmm. Like that's where I want to be now. Right. That's, I think that's, what, that's, what, that's where it's propelled me. Like before I knew something needed to be done, but now I want to live in that tension of this is what I knew before and this is what I know now. So how do I live between these two worlds where, like you said, we discon- deconstruct what needs to be deconstructed but at the same time, like build something in its place, not just level something because it's bad. As bad as it can be, we need to replace it with something and it needs to happen at the same time. Um,
0: May so. you travel well to Cuba next <laughs> week, my friend. Thank you. Go have fun yeah. building some new things and yeah. eating some some good food.
1: I will. <laughs> I will. it will be more fun eating the good food with my family who typically can't eat the food. So to, uh, be, able to be able to provide for them is going to be such a, that's my favorite part. Yeah, just to see them sit around a big table which they don't get to do as often uh, to eat to their heart's content and laugh and tell jokes and share stories and that's, that's going to be the magic of the trip for
0: sure uh, I wish you all the best thank you so much for joining us on the show today thank you hi it's Dash and it's time for the credits thanks for joining us on this episode of The Transformationist please subscribe, rate and review this episode wherever you listen to it and share it with a friend Visit thetransformationist.org for links to the resources mentioned in this episode and to subscribe to our email updates. You can also share your transformation story with us there, and I would love to hear from you. As always, this episode is produced by Michael Yoda at Truthwork Media. Music is by Hans Van Vliet. For more about me and the transformation work I do, check out the website. This show is proudly made possible by Solar Feeder Consulting.